Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. I want to invite you next week, especially to our Friends Day. It's uh, next Sunday morning, Bible class and then sermon Sunday morning. Um, This upcoming Friends Day is going to be a great day. It's going to be a fun day. We're going to have a lot of good time. We're going to um, have a great time of singing and praying and communing together. We're going to be studying from Isaiah chapter 53. And if you're maybe unfamiliar with that chapter, it's a great chapter in the book of Isaiah about uh, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who became our Savior. And then afterwards, we're going to have food and some fun outside. There's going to be a lot of games I've heard some whispers about maybe even an inflatable for the kids. Um, I've heard some stories, too, about even some sports and some games being played out in the field. So I want to encourage you to uh, come to our Friends Day. I also want to encourage you to think about bringing, inviting a friend, somebody that you know in your life. If everyone in here just gets in their mind, somebody that they care about, somebody somebody that they know, that they may have a relationship with yet, but they aren't really active in the church, invite them. The whole point of Friends Day is that we might be able to introduce to our friends on a particular day, a time when we're going to have fellowship and fun afterwards, an opportunity to share with them uh, who we are and ultimately who Jesus Christ is. So I want to encourage you to do that. It's going to be a great time. And speaking of having a great time, did you know that God actually wants you to have a great time now i'm not just meaning in one particular event like a friend's day but what i'm talking about is in your life that he has wired you designed you as your creator to have a great life a life filled with joy and a life full of peace a life that has great purpose, connection, fulfillment, and love. And if you are here this morning, halfway awake to what's going on in your life or even in the world, you might say to me, well, okay, if he's wired us to have a great life, to be full of joy and peace and love and connection and uh, justice and all those wonderful things, why, when I look around, both outside and inside myself, do I realize we're not really having that great of a time. There's a lot of really terrible things happening. A lot of difficult things we're experiencing. A lot of challenges. There's a lot of suffering and injustice, a lot of evil. There's frustration and anger. There's disappointment. Why is that? Well, one of the key things, one of the reasons behind that problem that we're having in this life, that we were designed to have a good life, but end up having a challenging or difficult life is rooted in this passage that we're going to learn about today from Isaiah chapter 42. But to begin with, we're going to have to go back and remember what's happening in Isaiah chapter 41. In Isaiah 41, what God does is he sets up this sort of fictitious court scene, this this imagery of a court scene. And he calls before him as the judge and jury all the wise, brilliant people across the world the Gentiles, the Jews, and he brings them uh, in front of him. And he asks these brilliant people, basically, 
how they're going to do it, how they're doing with their life, and to prove themselves to be the brilliant or the wise people that can give themselves the great life. And you see down in chapter 41, verse 21, God says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring in and tell us what is to happen. And he says, I want your idols, the things that you serve and love, to show me that they're really God. And you'll see down in verse 24, he says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you, speaking to the idol. Now looking down in verse 29, here is the reason you and I in this life struggle and have challenges. Here's the reason that we see such permeation of evil and injustice and difficulty and circumstances that are unfortunate. Because he says in verse 29, Behold, all of the ways that people are searching for in life for joy, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images, that means idolatry, is like empty wind. You see, one of the key reasons that you and I do not possess the kind of life that God wants us to have is that we are the ones who are always trying to create it for ourselves with our own wisdom with our own power with our own strength with our own might we're trying to forge our own way not along the path in which God has designed us to walk but our own way believing the deceptive lie of Satan which says if you abandon God and go your own way you'll find greater joy greener pastures fuller life that simple lie is at the heart of every sin in the world. That life without the restriction of God will be greater and better. Life with God is restricting and confining. And at the core of every sin is that lie. But here's the reality. Things like joy and peace and purpose, fulfillment, connection, relationships, love, things like that are gifts that you and I are supposed to receive not things that we can just create on our own we have to receive those gifts so that when we aim at following God faithfully we receive the great gifts of joy and peace happiness connection and love and so on and so forth what's happened is as human beings we've taken our eyes off of God and aimed at those things and creating those things our own way and it hasn't worked it's left us frustrated disappointed and without the life that God wants us to live from the beginning of time you and I have wanted to have happiness joy peace love and everything else I've described and over and over throughout human history people have sought to find those things in the wrong places and that brings us to Isaiah 42 the two verses I read for you in chapter 41 use one word it says behold Behold, in verse 24, you are nothing, meaning the idols that you serve, these gods that we serve that try to bring us life that really don't. He says, behold, these are nothing. They don't work. Verse 29, he says, behold, they are delusion. They're lying to you. And in, in contrast to that, Isaiah says in verse 42, chapter 42, verse 1, behold, my servant. 
Now this passage in Isaiah chapter 42 begins a section of scripture where Isaiah is going to give us what are called the servant songs. These are four distinct songs in the book of Isaiah that are all about the God's servant who is going to become the Messiah and the Savior of his people. This is the first one, verses 1 through 4. And he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And he goes on to describe this one. We're going to see this morning that we have first and foremost in a Savior Jesus Christ, one who is a servant. Now this is going to be counterintuitive to anything else that we have seen in human history about how to accrue power and how to make a difference in the world. Jesus goes about it way differently than anyone else we could ever imagine because he approaches it as a servant. Paul would describe him this way when he says that you and I should have the mind of Jesus in us. He said he was in the form of God, but although he was in God's form, he did not consider that something that he should hold on to, but made himself like a servant. So let's look this morning at this prophecy of this coming one who's going to save not just Israel and Judah, but the whole world through him. This promise of the heaven that he's going to bring comes through this servant who we know is Jesus Christ. Let's start first of all with the servant's purpose. Verses 1 through 4 are going to teach us his purpose. Now you notice when Donovan read this passage for us, there were three times that it was described what he was going to do. Verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4 say that he is going to bring forth justice. Justice. The purpose of the servant savior coming to earth was to bring forth justice you see his purpose as the servant of God was to bring forth justice for the whole world now justice is a very key word in the Old Testament it shows up over and over in fact there are two words that are married together that you should learn this morning that coincide one of them is righteousness and the other is justice Righteousness is a description of a quality. It means to be conformed. And so if you had uh, conformed to a standard, and so if you had a scale that was working properly, you could call that scale a righteous scale. It does the right thing. It's conformed to a standard. In the Old Testament, we see evergreen trees called righteous trees because when you look at them, they always look like they're supposed to look. They don't have leaves that fall and go dead and alive. They're just always what they're supposed to be. And so righteousness means to be conformed to the image in which God has created it to be. And justice flows right out outside of righteousness. That when we become righteous... That when we are what we are created to be, what flows out of us is action of justice. Now justice is more than just legal correctness. Being just is more than just being legally accurate. What he's talking about when he says that he's going to bring forth justice is used to describe how God wants life to be lived. In fact, the tabernacle is described in Exodus chapter 26 as a justice or just meaning this that here is a blueprint for how God wants the tabernacle to be built 
And so when he says he wants us to live in justice or he wants us to have justice and the Savior is going to bring forth justice, what he's saying is that he is going to bring forth how humans are supposed to live. He is the embodiment of the prayer that he taught us to pray when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done. He is the one that brought forth the will of God to be done. This means that Jesus Christ is going to right all that has gone wrong and he's going to undo the horrendous effects of sin. His purpose in coming to the earth, as John would describe it in 1 John chapter 3, was to destroy the work of of the devil you see Jesus's purpose in coming to earth was not just to brush our sins under the rug it wasn't just to be a forgiving sacrifice his point was to forgive us so that you and I could be conformed back to the image of God to bring forth justice to restore in us the way that we are supposed to live and so that means that he is going to first of all forgive sinners by being a perfect sacrifice. He's going to rescue sinners by being the object of their greatest affection. He's going to guide sinners by being the way for them to live and to follow. And when a person comes to Jesus Christ, this Savior, and receives Him by faith and becomes one with Him through the waters of baptism, something fundamentally changes in them. They are forgiven. Guilt is gone. They're constitutionally changed, meaning their shame is gone. Their love is restored back to God. Their faith is ignited. And they walk with Him. He's bringing forth justice. So this text doesn't just tell us what He's going to do, though. It also tells us how He's going to do it. And He tells us His power, first of all. You see, this is what makes Jesus so unique. It's the resources that he uses or the power that he has at his disposal to make this happen. He is unlike any other world leader. In fact, the end of Isaiah chapter 41 tells us about the the rise of Cyrus, King Cyrus, who's going to do this by being destructive force. He's going to use power and force to grab his kingdom. And he says, this servant is totally different. He's going to gain influence, not by domination or manipulation, but he's going to do it in a much different way. He doesn't come just being louder or more powerful. He accomplishes his purpose in a very unassuming way. He's got three resources or three powers you need to know about. The first one is this, that he is upheld by God. He's upheld by God. If you look down in verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold now this means upheld by God means to be strengthened by someone by taking a grip on them so imagine like yesterday Lisa and I took our kids to the to the pool to the New Albany pool to go down the slides and let Nash play in the little kitty splash pad and imagine for a moment that my little two-year-old didn't have his floaties on he jumps into the pool and he can't swim yet What's going to transpire in the next few moments, right? We see a kid, he's going underwater, and somebody bigger than him is probably going to lose their mind for a minute and then realize they got to do something, and they grab that child, and they pull that child up, right? They strengthen the life of that child by grabbing onto it and lifting it up. That's the same imagery that we're given here by Isaiah, that, wait a minute, Jesus is upheld by God, his Father. This is what the Father does with the Son. 
Jesus gets all of his strength, all of his strength from his father. Now this is kind of strange for me. Maybe it's strange for you because when I think about Jesus, I think about him being very self-sufficient. I think about him having strength that is all internal, that is just his because he's God, right? And so he doesn't need to be dependent upon anybody else. And yet he's a model of how life is to be lived. He is completely upheld by God. You see, he is like us in the fact that he experienced the weakness of a human being, but he's unlike us in this point. When we grow weak, oftentimes we look in the mirror, we look at somebody and we point at them and say, you need to get tough, you need to get strong. And there are times when we need to wake up and get ourselves together and say, we got to toughen up a little bit. There are times we need to do that. But we should be cautious with how we guide people into getting tough. Because if we look at somebody and say, within yourself, by your own power, by your own strength, all alone, self-independent, you get strong. We're misguiding people. We need to be guiding people to the strength that you get from God, not just the strength that you create yourself. So Jesus Christ was, number one, upheld by God. Number two, he was chosen by God. Verse one, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights being father's day some of you fathers out there probably know this feeling that children just the presence of children your children especially bring a delight to you because of who they are they're yours and they've been brought into the world by into your family he was one who gave his father delight now this sentiment my chosen one in whom my soul delights shows up at the baptism of Jesus too remember in John Matthew chapter 3 Jesus comes to John and says hey I need to be baptized by you and John resists for a moment says wait a minute the table should be turned here but Jesus says we've got to do this to fulfill righteousness conform to the image of God and when he goes down into the water and he comes back up there's this amazing moment where a dove, which represents the Holy Spirit, comes down upon Jesus, and a voice of the Father sounds forth. And here's what the voice says at the baptism of Jesus. You are my son, and I am pleased with you. Now here's why this matters. At this point in Jesus' life, he had not began his ministry. He had not been out there performing a bunch of miracles. He hadn't been out there standing on a hillside preaching and teaching to hundreds and thousands of people. He hadn't started all of that work yet. And yet, as a child of God, God looked at him and said, You are my child, and I am so utterly pleased with you. You see, this idea that he was assured of his father's love is what gave him the strength to go into ministry. It wasn't the ministry of Jesus that made God love him. It was the love of God that empowered him to minister. Now here's why that matters. Because you in your life will not always have people's approval. You won't always have people's admiration. You won't always have people's love. And Jesus himself didn't always have that. People were frustrated with him, disappointed with him, angry with him. And if he depended upon for strength other people's approval he would have given up on ministry very quickly but because he had his father's approval and his father's love 
he was able to continue. And you and I need to realize that in Jesus Christ, we have the approval and the love of the Father. And when you have that, you get a strength that carries you through people being disappointed with you. So the third thing Jesus had, he was upheld by God. He was chosen by God. Look down in verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 1. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. He was empowered by God. I will put my spirit. I have put it on him. The spirit, especially in the Old Testament, is the principle that really gets things moving, that gets things done. He's the thing that makes things happen. He got things done because he's the because he had the spirit in him. Jesus Christ when he received that, he got things done on earth because he had the spirit within him. He made himself, here's what's vital about this. Jesus Christ made himself a vessel for God to work through his life. You see, he didn't see this as just being a lone ranger saying, I've got to do this on my own. My father has sent me. I'll let you know when I'm done. I don't need any help. I've got my own strength. I've got my own power. That's not how Jesus operated. He was upheld by God. He was chosen by God. And the Spirit of God in him empowered him to do the work that God gave him to do. He was a servant, first and foremost, available for God to use. And when he was doing that, he was able to do something pretty great. Let me tell you first, lastly about this. Here's how he became a savior. Look in verse 2. Here's his process. And this is where things get very strange for Jesus. Unlike any other savior, unlike any other king of a kingdom, Jesus is different. He says in verse 2 that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. His process by becoming king is way different than anything else. You see, his method will be, first of all, quiet. He's quiet. He's unassuming. He's subtle. Jesus didn't walk out into the streets and demand that people recognize him. He didn't say, hey, you know who I am? I'm the Son of God. I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the Messiah. You need to bow down and recognize me. He didn't stand on the street corner and demand that people listen to him. He quietly went about his business serving, carefully teaching, loving, and caring for people. He didn't seek the press. He didn't promote himself, talk about himself. In fact, when he would do miracles, he often asked people not to say things about him. He just wanted his work to speak. He went about doing his work and let that be what spoke for him. Now it says also that he was, uh, verse 2, he would not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Verse 3 says this, that he is gentle. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Just imagine what Isaiah is trying to help you see here. You've got like a stalk that's healthy and green. It's standing straight up, and all of a sudden it's broken, and it's bruised, right? It gets really dark color green, and it's leaning over. And when you see that, typically what do you want to do with it? grab it and rip it right and just throw it out he comes to it and he says he lifts it up and he's careful with it a reed that's broken that's bruised he doesn't just throw it away or rip it apart he's so incredibly gentle he lifts it up he says that little flicker of flame that's on that candle that's ready just to go out that when you're maybe just ready to say to be done with it he comes and he carefully protects it 
and helps it to be inflamed again. You see, this is a beautiful picture and it shows you who Jesus connects with. It shows you who he serves. It shows you who people, who he's drawn to and who's drawn to him. You see, we oftentimes think that Jesus needs the strongest, the most successful, the loudest, the most vocal. We think oftentimes that Jesus wants those that are prominent to promote his religion. And when we don't feel like we're successful or strong or loud or prominent, we sometimes back away from being available to serve God because we're not some of those quote-unquote successful things that people look at. And here's what Jesus, here's what the Bible tells you about Jesus. He comes to the broken reed and the flame that's barely lit and he protects them and lifts them up and strengthens them. Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this way, that he takes the weak and the foolish of this world to shame the strong and the wise. Over and over and over, the Bible is full of stories where God takes that which is weak to do something that is mighty to declare His glory for your good. That's what He does over and over. And if you're here this morning thinking, I'm too weak, I'm not strong enough, I don't know enough, I can't do enough, I'm not prominent enough, I'm not successful enough. Look, Jesus works with the broken reeds. That's who He works with. Those that are proud and those that are boastful, those that think they've made it, are the ones that he can't deal with. In fact, Peter would remind us of this phrase, he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Listen to me. There are many, many proud men who have done dangerous things in the name of religion. C.S. Lewis said it this way, that the most dangerous people of all are religious bad men. What God needs are broken and contrite men and women. People who stand before the Word of God and their heart faints. People who look at the holiness of God and know, I don't measure up. It's in that broken condition that Jesus, the great physician, can show up and lift that reed back. He won't break you off. He won't throw you away. He doesn't look at you in your failures and say, I can't use you anymore. He looks at you in your failure and says, I'm going to do something great so that people know I'm glorious for their good. Do you see that? Stop believing the lie of Satan that when you're a broken reed, you're a useless reed. Or you barely have any flame that has no point to staying awake or alive. That's when Jesus shows up. He's the great physician. The last quality he tells us about this servant is this. That he's persevering. Look down in verse 4. The end of verse 3 says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on earth. Here's the last point. And Isaiah 42 is alluding to something that he's going to further expose. When you come back next week for Friends Day and you bring a friend with you, Isaiah 53 is going to tell us in greater detail what this Savior had to stay strong in, how he had to survive. What we get here is a glimpse of the fact that it's going to be difficult for him to be the kind of Savior that we need him to be. But he says that he's going to not grow faint or become discouraged. He won't do it. It's a subtle hint to what he's going to have to endure. He serves the broken, the weak, and the tired, but he himself does not become broken, weak, or tired. He himself is strong and persevering. This becomes essential as we see this Savior play out 
and the Messiah show up some 800 years from now. Because the way in which we need to be served and the way in which we need to be saved is going to take Herculean strength. God-like strength. You see, this quiet, unassuming, gentle Savior would one day come and stand strengthened and upheld by God, chosen by God, empowered by God, as a king before the mightiest person in his world, Pontius Pilate. And this man would stand there and look at Jesus and say, they say you're a king, are you the king? And Jesus quietly looks up and says, you rightly say, I am the king. And he bows his head again. And he's quiet and he's gentle and he's condemned to death. And he walks out to the Romans who grabs him and chains him to a post and they whip him 40 times, probably 39. And then they throw a board across his back and the way for him to walk is up a hill to a mountain where he would be hanged. And when he dies, all of his friends scatter. And at that moment, he looks like every other savior story we've ever heard of. A guy who promises big things but can't deliver. His kingdom is done. His kingdom is over. But we forgot about that one sentence he told Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight because that's what kings of this world do. They fight with domination and power and manipulation. But I'm one who shows up with compassion, mercy, service, and love. When I do that, I change people, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And I revolutionize, revolutionize the world with the smallest of seeds, like a mustard seed. So if you're here this morning, and maybe you're that broken reed or that very small flame, maybe you never really had the touch of the great physician. Maybe you've been trying with your own power, your own might, your own strength, your own ability, your own wisdom, your own insight. Are you exhausted yet? Are you worn out? If you're not, God's going to let you keep running until you burn out. I promise you. He's going to let you keep running to get to the end of your rope. And you look to him and say, I can't do it without you. And that'll be the greatest thing you ever say. I can't do it without you. Come to this servant Savior today. Let's stand and sing.